This is an ABC podcast. It was January 2020 and the university year was about to start. Students were buying books and choosing class timetables, preparing like any other year. But then stories began to appear in the news. Chinese officials have blamed a seafood market in Wuhan City for the outbreak. Coughing, shortness of breath, rapid breathing. Streets are being scoured and sprayed. No one's sure if this will turn into another global epidemic, but health authorities are getting ready in case it does. Travel to Australia from mainland China was blocked and the people who run the universities began to panic. Over a quarter of international students are from China and some experts believe if they're taken out of the equation, the sector could lose almost $8 billion this semester alone. The university semester began without Chinese students. Most students were able to continue their studies online, but it wasn't enough. At least 17,000 uni workers lost their jobs, including not only teachers, but researchers as well. It's a significant impact on our capacity to innovate and to compete internationally. It was devastating, and the unis are still waiting to see what the true fallout will be. The COVID crisis shone a light on something dark and nasty bubbling along in Australia's university sector. Racism, bullying and exploitation. Australian universities treat international students like cash cows. Racial assaults across Australia. A little bit lonely. And the unis are accused of not doing nearly enough about it. I think universities have to take some responsibility here. So when borders reopen, are Chinese students going to want to come back? I'm Matt Bevan, and this is China If You're Listening. Today in Australia, there are about 1.2 million people who have Chinese ancestry. That's 4% of the entire population. But in the 1960s, there were so few they could have fit into a medium-sized sports stadium with room to spare. And to really understand how we got to where we are now, we need to go back to that time. This is an ABC doco from 1965. This scene could be in Asia, but in fact, it's in Australia. For six decades, Australia enforced the explicitly racist White Australia immigration policy, which actually forced down the number of Asian people living in the country. Asians accounted for 4% of our population. Now they account for less than 1%. As one commentator pointed out, soon we'll be whiter than white. This report is from the ABC's Richard Oxenborough, who was reporting on the growing debate over whether the White Australia policy should be abolished. I think we should take Asians in... I don't think we can expect to keep Australia white forever. Do you? At the time, there were only 25,000 people with Chinese ancestry in Australia. They've added to our way of life in various ways, most obviously through their restaurants and shops. The Chinese, in a sense, find themselves in much the same situation as the Jews in Europe. Not really welcomed in the professions, they've concentrated on business. As part of the report, Richard Oxenborough interviewed some of the very small number of Chinese students who were studying at Australian universities at the time. Let me put it to you this way. Would you like to stay in Australia? No, I don't. <laughs> Why? I feel a little bit rejected here. Have you found racial discrimination? Everywhere, I think. Uh, but uh, the majority of the people in Australia, they are nice, but you very often you meet a lot of nasty people as well. What form has it taken? Well, you, want, you, you need some accommodation or you want to get a job, a vacation job. Sometimes you meet 
this kind of discrimination. In the 20 years after this was broadcast, a lot changed. The White Australia policy was abolished. China and Australia formed diplomatic relations. And Australian universities started to make money by charging international students for an education. But it wasn't just Australia that saw the value in Chinese students coming here. The leaders in China encouraged it too. In their estimation, one in ten students sent abroad might decide to stay there. But the rest would return home full of knowledge. In fact, most decided never to come back. More and more Chinese people were settling in Australia after they studied. While previously Chinese students had essentially been ignored by Australians, they were suddenly big news and a source of tension. Hundreds of Chinese students in Western Australia alone, once arrived, are disappearing. They seem to think they're welcome to overstay their welcome. In the 1990s, Australian universities were hoping to capitalise on the boom of Chinese students. They began aggressively marketing themselves in China. In just six years, the number of full fee-paying overseas students here has leapt from 2,000 to almost 50,000. Early on, though, there were signs of a problem. If you count living expenses, these students will pay between $60,000 and $200,000 for their degrees. The students started to feel like they were being squeezed for cash. What are the most common concerns among overseas students? Well, that uh, they don't get the value of money, basically. Um, They feel they're treated as a commodity by the Australian government, by the university. Treated as a commodity, like coal or iron ore, uni staff said it was a common complaint. Most of our students are a bit jaundiced about Australia. One of them said, I would never send my children here. We're being exploited. We're just treated like a commodity. That was exacerbated by federal government funding cuts. That public funding gap either has to be filled from non-public sources or the university is going to have to downsize. Non-public sources meaning international students. One in ten students at Australian universities now hail from China and their fees account for up to a quarter of the total income of some universities. The university sector, the media and the government explicitly talk about international students and Chinese students in particular in the context of them being a commodity. Given that education is our third largest export. Third largest export. Third largest export. Third highest export. Third most valuable export sector. And when I say we talk like that all the time, I am including me in this. Here I am on the radio a little while back. International education is Australia's third largest export industry. and So we all do it. But now I think about it, I feel kind of gross talking about it in that way, as though the benefits of providing university education to international students is equivalent to the benefits of selling coal and barley to China. Because if we talk that way, it runs the risk that we will start to treat people that way. There's a critical shortage of safe and affordable on-campus accommodation. In central Sydney, the visual signs of this shortage are everywhere. Converted sunrooms and boarded-up windows. As many as 14 students are crammed into one apartment. Studies suggest that once our universities take their enrolments, not a lot of consideration is given to what life will be like when the students get here. One report said that Chinese students complained that their English language skills became worse while studying in Australia. Studies show them becoming isolated and despondent during their time here. Not long ago, most students wouldn't return to China after they studied, but now 
Nearly all of them go back. This is Iris Zhao, our producer. She visited the University of Adelaide and spoke to some Chinese international students about what it's like studying in Australia. Like Yuki. Do you enjoy living here? Yes, of course. <laughs> so the first couple of weeks is definitely a struggle. And, you know, language and the culture shock. Yuki arrived in Adelaide to start her accounting degree in 2013. I didn't have any idea or any concept about how Australian university works and how the assessment works and tutorials, lectures. Nobody told me that. I didn't know anyone. And unlike other Chinese students, I didn't have any friends. I didn't know anyone when I arrived and I just dived in. (laughs) And she was surprised when she walked into her first class. In accounting especially, most students are actually Chinese students. I think universities have to take some responsibility here. This is Dr Fran Martin from the University of Melbourne. She's just finished a five-year study of attitudes of Chinese students in Australia. When we have some courses, particularly at the master's level, particularly in areas like business, commerce, finance and so on, we have concentrations of up to 80 or over 90% students from one particular overseas country, in this case the People's Republic of China. So you come halfway across the world and find that your class is full of people from China. That is a disappointment to people on their first day of class. They look around and go, uh, I thought I was coming to have, you know, a more cosmopolitan experience, but my classmates seem to all be from my same country. Most of the Chinese international students are postgraduates in commerce and business, many of whom are looking to make some extra cash. Obviously, students are allowed to work um, as part of their student visa, and many of them hope to do that as a way, another way, of gaining cross-cultural experience. So, go and get a part-time accounting job somewhere, or intern at a big company. Might be a good way to meet some new people. After arrival, they gradually realise that non-Chinese employers are not really giving them a chance. A lot of the big accounting companies and banks have got policies against employing anyone who isn't a citizen um, or a permanent resident. So then the students find themselves trapped into low-skilled work in the ethnic economy. Again, no chance to, to, to meet locals. So basically there's a bubble around Chinese students. They're separated from the wider Australian community, if not overtly discriminated against. Here's Yuki from the University of Adelaide. I went to Chinatown and, you know, tried to look for Chinese uh, restaurant and central market Chinese shops and it was a terrible experience. They don't pay legal rate, they bully you and they don't respect you as a person. Like for a moment I, I feel like I've never really escaped. Was Yuki's story common among the people you spoke to? Yes. In fact, everyone I spoke to told me they enjoy living in Australia, but I found difficulties in making friends and building a feeling of belonging. One student, Kelly, who I spoke to in Chinese, she said she still hasn't had the full experience of an overseas education yet because she hasn't been able to really mix with local Australian students. Another student said she was looking forward to going home. Her name is Masaki. She said it's hard to fit in here. People have their own circle. There aren't as many opportunities for international students, and it's just better to go back to China after school. 
Katrina Jackson from Universities Australia says unis are trying to improve this situation. They try very hard to ensure that there is a diversity of experience, that there are a range of experiences on offer. But she says it's difficult. When you really look at this, because this is an issue, we understand that, uh, the research tells us that People will cleave to people of similar cultures wherever they go, especially when they've moved from one culture to another. So there is a natural conglomerating with people who come from a similar background. Universities understand that. But Fran Martin's research indicates Chinese students are desperate to spend time with Australians when they come here. And it's something that they look forward to very strongly before arriving. And only after arriving are they hit with just how hard it is to realise that ambition. Having created this bubble, the universities have discovered that when conflicts arise between international students, they can't handle them. Universities have been accused of failing to identify the problem or overtly taking sides. This became clear back in August of 2019 when protests broke out on a number of Australian university campuses. Universities in Brisbane, Sydney, Canberra, Hobart, Melbourne and Adelaide all saw demonstrations. The protests were all about Hong Kong. See, Hong Kong is part of mainland China, but separate in many ways from its laws and customs. So when a new law was introduced that would subject people in Hong Kong to a mainland Chinese law, there was outrage. Back in China and in Australia too. It started off peacefully enough. Around 70 demonstrators met at the University of South Australia to show solidarity with fellow protesters in Hong Kong. The pro-Hong Kong protesters in Australia were met by groups of mainland Chinese students who were there to oppose them. Tensions boiled over when the pro-Chinese crowd claimed one of its female supporters had been pushed. This is girl, where you up? You guys should be ashamed! Protests continued. Hong Kong students reported that the tension had spilled into the classroom as well. There's some case report that some Hong Kong students who have a class, who are lessons with uh, the other mainland student, they even bully the Hong Kong student in front of the lecture. This is Jane Poon from the pro-democracy group Australia Hong Kong Link. She says in some cases the bullying intensified into threats. The letter says the students his family's address in Hong Kong. So a, so a person has received an email with his family's address in it and a th- in, in the form of a threat. Yes, it's really, really scary. Some Hong Kong students are fearful that there will be ramifications for them if they speak out against the Communist Party, even if they're in Australia while they're doing it. A lot of Hong Kong students really worry to openly express their thinking about CCP or Hong Kong government. They're afraid that they can't go back to Hong Kong. They fear that if they return to Hong Kong, they will have some consequence what they have done in Australia. Now, you might think this is simply an internal dispute between two groups of Chinese people. What does it have to do with us? Well, allegations of bullying, intimidation and threats being made among the international student population in Australia is not only unpleasant, it's a crime. This person was so intimidated they asked to have the sound of their voice changed. They are saying to like beat, beat us up, to hit us, to make us go back to our home country. Yeah, so we actually get threatened. It's also embarrassing for us. 
Australia should be a safe place to make your opinions heard without fear of ramifications. It shouldn't be that the Chinese government can simply follow these students here and engage in the same types of surveillance and censorship uh, that they would experience in Chinese universities. So, what can be done about it? I'm seeing a lot of commentary where people say, kick them out, deport them, go back to China. I don't think that's the solution at all. This is Vicky Shu, who came to Australia as an international student and is now a journalist. I think the university should feel a responsibility to educate these students, to teach them how to engage in debates in a civilised and respectful way and, you know, really make sure that they do truly enjoy living in a society that is democratic and that has freedom of speech. And yet that has proven difficult. When universities try to foster free speech, they receive complaints. The University of Tasmania received a complaint about pro-Hong Kong posters being put up on campus. In a statement published online, the Tasmanian Chinese Students and Scholars Association shared its anger over the posters. It expressed strong dissatisfaction to the school about the campus insult to China and called on the school to build a clean and pure learning environment for students. On the flip side, there are allegations that some universities are being too accommodating to pro-Beijing students for fear of losing their fees. Katrina Jackson from Universities Australia says that's not the case. Look, every single Australian university is absolutely unshakably committed to open, informed expression on campus and we encourage them to have as much debate as they like but to ground it in fact uh, and to maintain a civilised posture, at least, uh, in those discussions. But it's clear from everyone we've spoken to that universities are struggling to handle this. One of the reasons for that is it's hard to get the perspective of Chinese international students. We tried, but over and over again, we've found that people are reluctant to speak one way or another. The students our producer Iris spoke to weren't particularly political, but they were still fearful of what might happen to them if they talked too much to us about politics. All of them don't want me to reveal their identities. They fear their speech might cause consequences, even though they couldn't explain what kind of consequences they're fearing. We were all a bit overly paranoid when we spoke about stuff that's even just remotely related to politics. Why would some students be worried about criticising the Chinese government while in Australia? And why do others feel the need to stage demonstrations here to support it? Well, even when students are outside of China, they still use Chinese social media networks, which are controlled by the Chinese government. In the 90s and 2000s, Human Rights Watch researcher Yai Chu Wong says students had access to a pretty uninterrupted stream of information from the West via the internet. I got the information from the internet and from people who are on the internet who were willing to tell me their stories, willing to, uh, you know, educate me with information that I didn't get from the school system. But that opportunity is now gone. Starting in the 90s and culminating in 2009, a wall went up around the Chinese internet, referred to as the Great Firewall of China. At first, Western websites censored themselves. Google has set up a special Google China, which blocks searches on human rights or Tibetan independence. But eventually, Google, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and Wikipedia were all blocked and Chinese equivalents were built. And on those equivalents, 
discussion of certain topics is monitored and blocked or punished. The intellectuals and the journalists and, you know, those people who were on the internet telling younger people what happened, they no longer exist on the internet. Many of them are in jail, many of them have been silenced, some of them are in exile now. So I think, you know, the internet censorship is really a thing that saddens me because I think earlier everybody felt, you know, the internet is going to liberalize China. But, well, it turns out that the government has mastered censorship of the internet. This is the environment the current generation of Chinese international students spent their teenage years in, with strict government censorship. And the ubiquity of the internet means that that bubble of propaganda and censorship follows them to Australia. While, of course, in Australia, you're free to use Twitter and Facebook, all of your friends and family are on the Chinese government-censored equivalents, particularly WeChat. I use uh, WeChat just for relatives back in China. If you are a Chinese-language speaker looking to read, watch or listen to things in Chinese, the Chinese government is able to use WeChat to censor or alter what you can access. Vicky Xu says that can be problematic, even when the news you're reading isn't coming out of China. It's... Important to note that the news you get on WeChat are mostly translated from Western outlets, but they add their own comments to the actual news that they're translating from, and those comments are usually very nationalistic. But the censorship and propaganda is not perfect. As Iris found, students form nuanced opinions about the world and aren't uniformly supportive of the Chinese government. I had expected them to be overwhelmingly patriotic, but actually the students fall on different parts of the political spectrum. There are students who believe supporting everything the government says comes as part of the obligation of being Chinese. Others told me anonymously they are fed up with the bureaucracy and hypocrisy in China, and I always try to look at things from different perspectives. The perception that most Chinese students are fiercely patriotic and nationalistic, which has been backed up by multiple studies, is actually too simplistic. When we think about loving the country, um, in Chinese the, the term for patriotism and nationalism, or one, one way of saying nationalism, is simply aiguo, loving the country, that can mean a much more informal um, meaning than patriotism or nationalism have in English. It can mean simply being homesick, Homesick. That's quite different to patriotism. Missing the culture, missing the people, realising the good points about everyday life in one's home society. So when some people say that they love China more, it could be those everyday kind of um, aspects of life and culture. This misunderstanding is one that the Chinese government wants to emphasise. I feel when we discuss China in, a, in, a, in that kind of ominous tone in, in Australian media and public life, we tend to approach it as though there's no distinction. You know, people from China, oh, they must be kind of agents of the party or else they must be dissidents, one or the other. Love of the nation, love of the people and love of the government are clearly understood as different things when we talk about other countries. You can love British people but think of Britain as a cold and wet place. Similarly, you can love Americans, but not love their government. If you were abroad and told someone you missed home, you wouldn't expect that person to assume that you meant you missed the Australian government of the time. And yet Australians conflate those things with Chinese people all the time. 
Earlier this year, there was an article published in a University of Melbourne student newspaper suggesting Chinese students should be banned from studying in Australia as a form of protest against the Chinese Communist Party's human rights abuses. As Fran Martin says, this is exactly what the Communist Party wants you to do. Conflate nation, party and people into one entity, meaning you can't criticise the party without also criticising the nation and the people. It's wrong, and to be honest, it's also racist. But when it comes to racism, that's only a small part of the story. Some important developments in our war against the Chinese virus... Here he is, our old friend Donald Trump, talking about COVID-19. A lot of people took issue with the phrase Chinese virus. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? Because it comes from China. It's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China. But as COVID-19 spread throughout the world, racism towards the Chinese community ramped up. Two Chinese students set upon by their attackers. A lot of people have used this as bullets to fuel their racist agendas. A Hong Kong student being punched in the face in Hobart for wearing a mask. He just shouted at me, like, coronavirus. Photos of racist graffiti across the country have also emerged. Reportedly shouting coronavirus and telling them to get out of our country. It was ugly and widespread and Fran Martin discovered a lot of it was happening on uni campuses. Some of my participants noticed racist anti-Chinese graffiti in the toilets on campus. Um, Local classmates were sometimes certainly being hostile, unwilling to sit with international students or or certainly unwilling to befriend them. When our producer Iris went to the University of Adelaide and spoke to the Chinese students there, she discovered the same thing. So one student, Cicely, said teenagers were making rude gestures at her friends and shouting racist slurs. Another student, Aria, she said she can feel racism is on the rise compared to five years ago when she just arrived in Australia. Now, remember that 1960s documentary about the White Australia policy? The one where students talked about their experience studying in Australia? There's something that jumped out at me and Iris when we were watching it. Do you find that there is any discrimination? Um, I think in general there isn't, but in some cases you do come across them. What sort of cases? Oh, such as finding jobs. Would you like to stay in Australia? Well, if I can get a reasonable, interesting job, I wouldn't mind. What's the likelihood of your being able to stay here? Practically uh, nil. I feel a little bit rejected here. That is so... It's so similar to what you heard at Adelaide Uni, isn't it, Iris? Yeah. um, The students I interviewed uh, said basically the same thing. They all said most Australians are not discriminatory, but almost all of them had experienced racism personally or heard of such stories from people they know. And some said it was particularly problematic while they were trying to get a job. That there is any similarity between the answers of people living under the White Australia policy and people living here in 2021 is shameful. At the moment, universities are desperate to try and get international students back into the country. If borders don't open or if there is no return of students from China and the other 143 countries that we draw our students from, if there's no return at any level of scale before the middle of next year, it may well be that students don't come back to Australia, that they choose somewhere else. 
Governments are looking to create exemptions to border controls to allow them to return even before the coronavirus pandemic ends. This is about creating jobs and opportunities. International students is a a vitally important sector. And surprise, one of the biggest drivers behind this is the need to boost revenue. Education is our third biggest export, you know. But things may never go back to normal. The Chinese government, in the midst of issuing trade sanctions on Australia, also issued a warning. China has issued a warning to its citizens to be cautious about studying in Australia because of the risk of racist attacks. There are two big questions about how this is going to play out in the future. Firstly, whether the Chinese government's warnings are going to be heeded by students. And secondly, whether we are going to keep treating them like a commodity. Because newsflash, people are different from coal and iron ore. Katrina Jackson says the problem is being addressed. Look, there is always more work we can do. I would stress, though, that the most recent survey of of the attitude that Chinese students have about their their educational experience here tells us that 9 out of 10 of those students are either satisfied or very satisfied. And remarkably, that hasn't just held up but held up very well over the last the past 12 months. That isn't to say, Matt, that there aren't students who are less than satisfied. It's really important we get this right. As if you needed proof of that, let's go back to Yuki for a second. The first question Iris asked her when they met at the University of Adelaide was why she decided to stay in Australia permanently after her studies were over. Here's the answer. Oh, I'm, I'm gay. So I... Uh, this is the first place I can live like just as me and I don't need to worry about people's judgement because from my parents' perspective I, no matter how successful I am what kind of job I'm doing what degrees I've accomplished I'm always a sick person because of my sexual orientation but in here I've never experienced any kind of discrimination against my sexual orientation I mean against my colour <laughs> of skin maybe but um, not against my sexual orientation and I'm living together with my partner we've been together for 10 years that's so sweet yeah, yeah she came uh, together with me from China so how many tonnes of coal do you reckon that story's worth China, if you're listening, is written by me, Matt Bevan. It's produced by Iris Zhao, Will Ockenden and Amelia Tan. Our series producer is Yasmin Parry. If you want more analysis of the latest China news, check out the ABC's new weekly TV program, China Tonight with Stan Grant. It's available on iView. Next. Did you talk to him about ancient Greece? Yes, yes, we did. We, we, we both... <laughs> Yes, it's odd, isn't it? Why would the Prime Minister of Australia and the President of China be talking about the Peloponnesian War, which, of course, is the war between Athens and Sparta? Back when relations were warmer, Malcolm Turnbull and Xi Jinping had an interesting chat. China and the West have to be very careful that we don't fall into the Thucydides trap. The Thucydides trap. It's an idea with roots in ancient Greek history. Here's how it goes. So often in history... When a, there is a rising power, uh, its rise uh, makes the incumbent anxious and often conflict uh, arises. It's hotly debated at the moment. See, China is rising and it's making the incumbent power, the United States, 
nervous. I would say in talking about America uh, and the West with Xi, it's a reminder that Chinese leaders have a much better understanding of the West than the West does of China. So, in our final episode of the season, will the US and China go to war? You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.